Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to listen to the Waterline podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. People ask me all the time, Shane, what's the future look like? Are we going to flourish? Are we are, are we going to drive ourselves to extinction? Are we going to destroy everything? Are we going to create heaven on earth? A big part of that incredibly complicated question is water. Water is absolutely fundamental to life. And knowing what is going on with water, the various technologies, the economics, political, social, behavioral, technological, and environmental aspects of water around the globe is really fundamental to understanding questions like that. And if you guys are into science and learning about things that affect our lives and the world, which I know you are, I believe the Waterline podcast is for for you. I just finished a episode called Water for All Regulation all about comparing the different regulations in different areas like the Israeli water law passed in 1959 and comparing how their system of of regulating water compares to California's model of regulating and how We might work together to figure out the best pros and the cons of different systems all around the world. Very, very important stuff. Please check out the Waterline podcast on your Android app and at the iTunes store. Hey guys, quick correction on last week's episode. I uh, am embarrassed. I foolishly mispronounced Leanne Keeler's name incorrectly. I did it like twice, once in the intro, which I just ended up taking out. Um, and then uh, during the interview itself, I pronounced it Keller. Uh, I am terrible with names and terrible with pronunciation of names and retaining new names. Um, I'm good with numbers and concepts. I get those real easy for some reason and pronunciation of names and words in general my vocabulary is awful something i'm very self-conscious about and uh and it just takes me a lot more cognitive effort and focus and takes up uh, a bit more of my brain's real estate i think than um, some other people so sometimes when i'm in these interviews and uh you know very uh some thought-provoking and sometimes challenging for for me to come up with um new and interesting questions and think on my feet and whatnot um sometimes when when um when the cognitive load gets a little heavy uh pronunciation is the first thing to go and i often am um okay at masking it but last week i was not i'm sure i owe an apology to half of my guests i'm sure i pronounced their names incorrectly but um anyway so a uh, quick apology to her and um don't uh, just i wanted to say that because you guys are probably um wondering half the time when i say words that um don't fit in the right place or i mispronounce words <laughs> what's going on with that it's just um one one of my many flaws but it's something that i'm working on um anyhow Blah, blah, blah. Uh, I hope you had you guys had a wonderful holidays. If you're into that, I'm not a big uh, I'm not a big tradition guy. I'm not a huge holiday 
guy uh, in general. But um, but I do hope you guys had a good one in whatever it is that you believe or celebrate. Um, it's always nice to see people come together and be nice to one another and uh, and not be um, fighting and bickering about whatever um, silly nonsense story is on the news. But um, so so that's that. That's a strange holiday message. A little ranty for for a friendly holiday <laughs> greeting. But I do sincerely hope you guys had a good one. I hope you have a wonderful new year, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Uh, Today, I am in lovely Boulder, Colorado. I'm talking to Assistant Professor Bart Delane at the Lead School of Business at the University of Colorado Boulder. How are you doing today, Bart? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm wonderful. I'm uh, I'm excited to talk to you because my friend uh, Peter McGraw, who always gives me awesome suggestions uh, for guests, suggested that I talk with you today. And I was looking over some of your work and it seemed um, very interesting. I think we're going to have a lot to talk about. Um, you do a lot of uh, you, you do a lot of kind of um, consumer behavior stuff and and some like behavioral economics stuff, sort of. And right? that's right, yeah. Um, so I was curious because I've had I've had a fair amount of like marketing people on and and consumer behavior people, and and it's it's something that uh, I often. Uh, my audience has written me and was like, I want more marketing people. And it's something that people seem very interested in. And I think it's, uh, and just kind of in general, I have listeners that uh, write into the podcast and, and, you know, they, they hear about some of these studies and they talk about how it kind of changes the way that they look at life or, uh, or make decisions or whatever. And, and which is kind of, the point that's the effect that reading all this stuff had on me when I first started learning about it. And, and this is kind of part of the reason why I started this podcast was to share that with other people. But I was curious how, um, how you got interested in this field. Um, so my background is in psychology. I did an undergrad and a master in psychology in, in, uh, in Leuven. Um, and I actually specialized in uh, theoretical psychology and organizational psychology. So I, I majored in organizational psychology, human resources, and then I did a minor in, in theoretical psychology. And while I was um, studying, I, um, I found myself mostly in the library studying other things. And um, I, I started reading um, some of um, Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky's work, mm. the, the prospect theory um, work and the work on, on heuristics and biases. And we didn't have a course in, um, in, on decision theory um, in, my, in my undergrad. And so I got really fascinated by, by that type of, uh, type of research and more and more interested in um, kind of more the, the theory behind how people make decisions as opposed to um, the more applied domains of personnel selection and organizational change, et cetera. Um, 
and then I, I wrote a, a thesis um, in social psychology on, on motivation, um, the difference between extrinsic motivation and intrinsic motivation. Why do people do what they do? Do they do it because they can pursue an extrinsic incentive, a monetary incentive, for instance, or do they do something that they that they really um, b- because they really love doing it, the activity itself, right? Mm. Um, and then actually, um, my advisor asked me if I wanted to um, pursue a PhD in social psychology. And then at the same time, I received an email from uh, a former student at the university where I was at who started a PhD in Rotterdam in, uh, in marketing. And he sent me this email. He sent this email to, to everyone, all the, all the senior, uh, senior students. And he said, well, um, I've always loved psychology, but you shouldn't do a PhD in psychology. You should come to a business school and study consumer behavior. We do exactly the same thing. Um, we study how consumers make decisions, how people make decisions, how they make judgments, how they make inferences, etc. Mm. But um, we apply it to the real world. And it's actually much more interesting. There is much more resources um, to do your research, etc. So I, uh, I visited the Rotterdam School of Management, Erasmus University in, uh, in Rotterdam. And um, I met the people there and I decided to do um, a, a PhD in marketing and um, to actually study in more depth how people make decisions between products, how they make decisions um, under uncertainty, how they assess risk, um, et cetera. Hmm. Um, it, you know what's interesting when you brought up uh, Kahneman, I, w- I was thinking, uh, as I was looking over your work, and this is actually one of the papers that I didn't get a chance to read, I just kind of uh, glanced at it, but I wanted to ask you about it because uh, it kind of reminded me of um, I'm not even sure if it's his work, but I, I'm pretty sure it was in Thinking Fast and Slow, uh, where where he talked about um, he talked about how um, it, when when selecting the car to buy and measuring fuel efficiency, how miles per gallon is a deceiving metric to measure um, how how fuel efficient um, your vehicle is because uh, the difference between you know a low mileage vehicle. Uh, you know, uh, getting 10 miles to the gallon and and 13 miles to the gallon is going to make a, a much bigger difference if you're measuring it on how many gallons it takes to go 10,000 miles or whatever than than a hybrid car going going like uh, you know uh, 50 miles per gallon to 60. Even though intuitively you would think because there's a 10 mile uh, mile uh, per gallon difference as opposed to a three, um, you, you would think that there's a bigger savings in that higher efficiency car. And I saw, I saw your paper about, um, uh, about um, uh, time management. Uh-huh. Um, that kind of reminded me a little bit about that. And it was, it, it, I just saw that it, it was uh, about processing power, and it sort of reminded me of the same. <laughs> it is very closely related, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'm very familiar with the, uh, the, the miles per gallon illusion is the paper that you were talking about. It's a paper by, by Rick Larrick and, and Jack Saul, mm. who, are, who are at Duke. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you basically you nicely summarized the paper. The idea is um, when consumers choose between cars, they make these decisions based on, on the information that is presented to them. And one of those dimensions is miles per gallon. 
Um, but in fact, if you take the consumer perspective, consumers shouldn't care about how many miles he can drive with a gallon. Consumers should care how many gallons he will consume given a, a number of miles that he drives How every, many miles every are you going to drive in a year? Yeah. Right, exactly. Um, so the consumer should care about it for two reasons. One, um, because that is linearly related to how much the car it will cost, it will cost to drive the car. Mm-hmm. But also, it's linear. It, it's related to the impact that the car will have on the environment, right? So it's the, it's the gallons that have the bad impact on the environment. It's not necessarily. It's not the miles, right? <laughs> right. Um, and um, and so the 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 key idea of that paper is there is this sharply nonlinear function between miles per gallon and gallons per mile, such that increases from a low base reduce gallons per mile a lot but then increases from a high base, so increasing from, from 40 to 50 miles, uh, to, from, ter- 30, from 40 to uh, 50 miles per gallon, um, has, has a very minimal impact. And consumers tend to not realize that there is this nonlinear relationship, and they tend to linearize the relationship. They tend to believe that an increase in 10 miles per gallon is the same, regardless of the base, right? From 20 to 30 is the same as from 30 to 40. And they're wrong. And so it turns out that this is this is a very general tendency. Um, so tra- trying to relate it to um, to Kahneman and Tversky, one of their big ideas is that the world is is complex, and it's too complex for us to find optimal solutions. And what we do is we simplify the world. We use some heuristics to simplify the world, and this leads to approximate solutions. Um, and these approximate solutions can be good. That it, this is uh, Gigerenzer's point. If you if you're familiar with his work, oftentimes mm-hmm. like finding simple solutions to complex problems is actually adaptive in the real world, right? right. Um, because it's efficient in terms of time and cognitive resources, etc. Um, but sometimes there these approximate solutions are actually wrong and can get us into trouble. And so one major source of complexity is nonlinearity. A lot of problems are nonlinear, such as the miles per gallon versus gallons per mile is a, is a nonlinear problem. And the way our mind tries to simplify this complex problem is by imposing a linear structure on it. Um, mm. And that is adaptive in some sense because we realize that there is this, um, I mean, a linear function can approximate the nonlinear function, but in some areas, it's going to lead us into trouble, right? Yeah, you can't, you can't like correct. break down, uh, you know, get out the the uh, the calculator and, and 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 sit with a notepad and think out every little choice that you're going to make in in life. You know, if it, if you're going to get up and where you're going to eat for breakfast or what kind of coffee you're going to have or whatever, you can't spend an hour figuring out the optimal. The solution for every one of those choices. Exactly. And so we make simplifying assumptions, and one of the simplifying assumptions is linearity. And so what we did in our paper is say, well, um, many different um, product categories that consumers care about have a very similar nonlinear, uh, nonlinear structure. Consider, for instance, the consumer choosing between internet connections. Um, so the information that you typically get is how many megabits per second um, is the download speed, and then you get a similar metric for for upload speed. Um, And this can be like like 5 megabits per second or 25 or 50, you go to to 100 or 150. Um, And so as a consumer, you can ask yourself the question, consumers are not interested in maximizing download speed, they're interested in minimizing download time. 
Right. They have a number of movies or a number of songs or whatever they want to download, and they want to do that in the minimum time possible. And so, um, as is the case for miles per gallon and gallons per mile, the relationship between megabits per second and seconds per megabit, right, which is the time to download a megabit, is also nonlinear. And so you get a lot of benefit in terms of download time when you increase your internet connection from 5 to 25 megabits per second, but then further increases... um, 100 to 150. ...have a much smaller impact on download time. So intuitively, this makes a lot of sense, right? What is the minimum download time? It's zero seconds, right? right? It's zero. And so if you keep on increasing and increasing the download speed, you're going to get closer and closer to zero, but the the marginal benefit that you're getting is getting smaller and smaller and smaller because you get closer and closer to zero. Right. right? That's, the, that's the point. And so many, many metrics in the, in the consumer domain have this, have this structure. When you buy a printer, you're not interested in the pages per minute. You're interested in the minutes per page. When you buy a washer or a dryer, you're not interested in the rotations per second. You're interested in seconds per rotation or you're interested in how long it takes to dry your clothes. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, and so we, we are bombarded as consumers with these numerical attribute specifications. And we tend to assume that the benefit that we get from increases in the attribute is, is linear. Um, and oftentimes they're nonlinear. So uh, the, the people, say, making computers and, and putting out these products, I mean, they're, they're aware of this effect, right? They, they must be. Uh, so, so why are they not... Uh, why are they not advertising? Wait, wait, why are why are car companies still using miles per gallon when they could be using a gallon, like informing their consumers better and using uh, gallons per ten thousand miles or, mm-hmm. or whatever? Is, is that is there a reason why they're not, or is it just tradition or yeah so so in marketing there's this there there's this big idea this is like from the 60s or 70s or so there's difference between a product orientation and a market orientation and um so the idea is that companies typically tend to adopt a product orientation they're so focused on their product and they communicate specifications that are directly related to the product without taking the consumer's perspective and thinking about what is the benefit that the consu- this consumer is looking for. Mm. Um, so this is this, uh, Theodore Levitt, who is a Harvard um, professor, summarized this as um, consumers don't want to buy um, a quarter-inch drill. They want to buy a quarter-inch hole. <laughs> right, right? They're right. not buying the drill. They're buying a hole in their wall. And the same thing for... Um, for download speed and download time. Consumers are not buying megabits per second, they're buying time, right? They're not buying pages per minute or print speed, they're buying time. Hmm. Um, And so um, there is just this tendency, I guess, from companies to just focus on the product. That's what they're doing. We just made it faster. Exactly. (laughs) Whether that affects someone or not is... It doesn't matter as much. Right. And I think a lot of these um, metrics just come straight out of the, the engineering um, department of the company. And they're just uh, fed forward um, to, to the consumer without realizing um, that they may not be optimal to, do, to the consumer. And so the big idea in the, in the 60s and 70s was if you, if you highlight the benefit to consumers 
um, then they're actually going to be more likely to buy, mm. right? If you advertise a drill in terms of a hole, right? Or if you, uh, for your computer, for instance, or, or uh, an, an iPod or so, you can talk about gigabytes of, of storage. If you say instead, you can store 5,000 pictures, right, right, right? right? That is much more compelling to a consumer and a consumer will be more likely to buy. Um, so that's the idea, but but it, I mean the the evolution is such that it, it it needed to be pointed out, right? Companies have a natural focus to focus on the product, um, a natural product orientation, and then they need to be reminded continuously that there is also this consumer, and that you can take a different perspective. Um, Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting part with these mile per gallon and gallons per mile and the nonlinearities between the attributes and the benefits is that it's not always um, more beneficial for the company to focus on the benefit. Um, because sometimes, because of this nonlinearity, consumers can overestimate the benefit that they're getting for an increase in the attribute. And that may actually be beneficial for the company. So think about um, Comcast, for instance. What's that? Comcast. Okay. So Comcast benefits from the misunderstanding of consumers. Comcast benefits from consumers believing that an increase from 25 megabits per second to 100 megabits per second is really important. It's it's as important as from 5 to 25 megabits per second. Right? M- they, much they, like people people feel like they need to stand in line for the next iPhone because the the 8 is going to be such a, so much better than the 7 is even though it was just a year ago and right, right, possibly right. The, the whatever little changes are are negligible yeah yeah um so we've we've done an analysis of um pricing of of internet connections and so basically the um, major internet providers are char- charging the same money for every megabits per second. So the difference, the upgrade from 5 to 25, is 20 megabits per second, is equally expensive than an upgrade from 25 to 45. Mm. Okay, So they can charge the same money for an increase in, for the, for the similar increase in, in, uh, in megabits per second. So they're, they benefit from consumers not realizing that there is a decreasing marginal returns mm. in terms of download time. And so there is, I don't know if they actually realize this, but I do think one of the, um, one of the responsibilities of academics is, is twofold. Uh, pointing this out to consumers such that they're better armed or, or better protected um, against companies, but also pointing out to companies that the information that they're providing to consumers um, may not be ideal for consumer welfare. Right. And then, I mean, regardless of whether the, the information that they provided, whether it's a consequence of bad intentions or good intentions, now at least companies are aware of the problem and it seems only ethical to provide metrics that, are, um, that put consumers in a better position. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like it, it could be um, pretty manipulative as, uh, you know, a car salesman when, uh, especially, you know, the, the people that are buying these hybrids or whatever are, are obviously the ones that are caring the most about the fuel economy or, or you know, the, the impact on the environment. And, you know, they might think, ooh, this, this extra 10 miles a gallon is going to be worth the however many thousand more dollars whereas someone buying a truck you know that's getting it's probably it'll be like well what's the difference three three more miles per gallon mm-hmm. you know um 
That's very interesting. I, um, I, I was very curious. This is a, a bit of a, a jump, but, um, and, but one, uh, one thing of it, uh, an aspect of your work that I was really interested in, we had uh, uh, recently have had some guests on the program uh, talking about um, uh, talking about the kind of evolution of language and how language changes and um, and how uh, globalization has affected um, how how we communicate and how it's changed language over time and and um, you know we talk, a, a lot of stuff about how um, when when places are like more of a melting pot, language becomes more simplified, and and when um, in smaller groups that branch out, they tend to you know develop a little more bit of their own jargon and whatnot. But anyway, um, it, you did you've done a fair amount of work with um, the effect of global globalization on uh, on marketing mm-hmm. um, and and using um, like a, a, a person's first language as opposed to their second language to advertising mm-hmm. to them. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so this is research that I did um, during my PhD in the Netherlands. Um, and I've I've invested less in this research stream since moving here five years mm-hmm. ago because it's it's harder to do, um, to find multilinguals um, here, here in the U.S. I mean, in the Netherlands, everyone speaks... Dutch and English and some speak German. You go to Belgium, where I'm from originally, there people speak French and Dutch and English and some people's native language is Dutch, other people's native language is, is French, but they also speak the other language, so you can do very nice controlled designs where you counterbalance the native language and the second language, etc. Um, How many languages do you speak? Well, I speak Dutch and I've learned French, but I, I don't use it regularly, right. so... It's somewhere in my mind, and I'm sure I could retrieve it in the <laughs> right context if I'm in the right context for for a while. Um, and then and then English, but then many Belgians also speak German because they learn it in in school. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I, I speak three languages. Um, <laughs> Not to interrupt. Go on. Um, but um, so yeah, so we looked at the the emotional impact of advertising messages in people's native language versus um, their second language. And so what we found was um, that so, so companies have this tendency to advertise, to use the same language in different countries, and mostly this language is English. It's cheap to produce one ad that has the same English um, so, slogan on it. And so what we found is that um, in the, the, when um, an ad is in consumer's second language, the emotional impact is actually weaker than um, when an ad is presented in consumers' native language. And this is an interesting idea, I I, I think, because why do companies advertise? One major reason is to establish or create emotional associations with their their brand. Think about McDonald's. I'm loving it, right? Right. Um, And so if the emotional impact of the words that they're using is weaker then this this attempt will be less um, less successful mm-hmm. um, and so the we also examined why this might be the case, so why is it that the same exact sentence in your native language feels more emotional than in in another language um, and so we think it's it's based on this associative learning process where um, you use your native language in different contexts than you use your second language, so your native language you typically use 
um, in interaction with your parents and your close friends and family, etc. These are typically more emotional contexts. Um, your second language you use in a professional setting or at school, etc. These are typically colder contexts. And words acquire an emotional intensity um, partly because of the context in which you use it. Right, so if you think about what a word is, it's just like I mean, initially it's just a bunch of letters, right? It's 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 meaningless right. for your brain, and your brain tries to figure out what the semantic meaning is and what the emotional intensity, the emotional meaning is of the word. And we learn this in an associative way. You use the word mom, for instance, mother, when your mom is there, right? When you're young, and this is as a as a positive emotional feeling. Um, the word mother you've never used in that context. Right. right. So there therefore mom in my native language is mama. Um feels more emotional than mother. Hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes it makes sense that, that if you're say advertising um you know some food or some kitchenware or something like that and you're trying to uh advertise that like this this is going to um uh, uh, this this is going to encourage family time or, or you know something like that or you know like uh, uh, you you're trying to bring about memories of of home style cooking or like uh, getting together with family at the holidays you know if you're trying to advertise that product i would think that it would it, it would make sense that it would in your first language that would then draw back memories of your childhood and sitting around the table with your family or whatever whereas maybe in your second language it wouldn't yeah exactly and but it but it's interesting how specific um this is so if you think about the word family for instance the dutch translation is familie it's almost identical mm-hmm. right the only difference is the y at the end is an i and an e in Dutch, hmm. okay, and so you present family versus family to Dutch people, people with uh, Dutch as a native language, and so family feels more emotionally intense to them, right? So it's very specific. Everyone knows what family means, but just thinking about it in their native language brings to mind different associations, hmm. as you say, and reminds you of. Doing having Christmas with your family or a birthday party or whatever, right? And that makes the word and the ad feel more emotional. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not multilingual, so I'm not. A, I I don't I don't have as much of a frame of reference, but it, I I would think that you know if uh, the the language that you're born up from, you, you're you're more or less kind of speaking from the heart. You, you don't have to really think so much when you're talking. Maybe I do because I'm not, I don't have the best vocabulary in the world. But when, if you're, if you're trying to say, say I was to try to say a few phrases in Spanish right now, which I am not even going to attempt to do, um, it would, it would be much more of an intellectual uh, thing and kind of thinking it out. And I think that would kind of be a little more of a disconnect. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it, it's also less fluent. Um, but so what, what, what we found is that um, irrespective of people's proficiency, right? so even when people clearly understand what you're talking about and the words are very similar to their native language, you still find this difference because they trigger different um, emotional associations. Hmm. Right? So it's not, not specifically related to the fluency or the understanding of the word, but just by the also the emotional associations and the autobiographical memories that are triggered hmm. um, 
by uh, using the word. Um, uh, that's very interesting. So I'm going to, it's funny because your, your work is, uh, a, a lot of times uh, I do an interview and it's like, there, there's this smooth flow. You can see a very smooth flow of someone's work yeah. and they've kind of, uh, stuck with the same sort of thing, but, but you, you've kind of, um, uh, been a little bit more all over the place with with uh, some of your. I mean, it's I, so I can help you with the flow. Uh, um, <laughs> I I understand when you see the individual papers, um, they may seem disconnected, but like the the two my two broad streams of research are um, numerical cognition and intuitive statistics. So how do consumers make sense of the the numerical information that is thrown at them? How do they infer benefits from? Um, product information, and then the other stream of research is is um, the uh, the effects of language on uh, how 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 are advertisements etc perceived in different languages, and what is the effect on marketing research? So to help you make a connection, um, so do you want to talk about the navigating by the stars paper also the the review paper? Yeah, yeah okay, good. Great. So let me let me make the connection. Um, there, there's another paper I wrote that looks at um, how the language of a rating scale affects the rating that people give. Okay, so think of me. So I, I, my native language is Dutch. But um, I oftentimes rate products online using English rating scales. When I go to Amazon, I can rate a product. And then the rating scale goes from one star, I hate it, to five stars, I love it. Okay, and um, so what we've shown that is that the ratings that people give in their second language, and second language rating scales are more extreme than the ratings that they give in their native language. And so it's completely consistent with our earlier story. At first, people always say, like, huh, isn't this the opposite from, from the other paper? But it's completely consistent. So think about, so you just bought a CD, okay. um, Adele, okay? You bought the CD. And um, it triggers some kind of um, reaction in you. You either like it or you don't like it. Um, now you see this rating scale and it goes from, I hate it to, I love it. I really like the CD. So for me, I love it doesn't mean so much. So I'm going to give a five star rating. Okay. Now in my native language, the, I love it is changed in, ik hou ervan. Ik hou ervan means more to me than I love it. Hmm. So I'm going to be less likely to give a five star, but I'm going to reserve give a, that a four star. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is also on the, on the negative end. Um, I'm going to be more likely to say I hate something in English because it means less to me, right? So people are going to use more extreme, um, give, give more extreme assessments, give more extreme ratings. Like Europeans, for instance, me as well, we, we tend to use swear words in English. Why? Because they don't mean anything to us, right? They don't have the same emotional impact. Oh, that's interesting. That, that's why yeah, we're sometimes yeah, yeah. inappropriate. Um, uh, like when, I, when I teach here, I oftentimes say inappropriate things, and my <laughs> students are looking at me like, what, what did you just say? And I'm then, Dutch. Uh, exactly. And, and, and then I talk about my research. Like, yes, sorry, guys, but I don't have these, this emotional <laughs> barometer. Really funny. Yeah. And so, and so this has effects on the ratings that consumers provide online. Right, so hmm. you rate products in English, my second language. I'm going to give more extreme ratings um, than than when than if I were had, had given these ratings on on a in my native language. Hmm. I I'm, I'm probably making connections that aren't there right now, but it, it's just because um, as an entertainer, 
I get raided a, a lot, and, mm-hmm. and I feel like oftentimes the um, the the more thoughtful reviews fall somewhere in between, you know, the the, the middle range rather than um, like like say a one star review is usually just like someone who I'm sure clicked on it for 30 seconds and was just like, this guy's gay or you know, like whatever a troll. They're not, they're not attached. They're not like, you know, kind of giving it a chance at all. And, and, um, and, and the people that give it say a five star review might be people that just, you know, already liked me. Didn't really look, didn't really um, yeah. put a lot of thought into it. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't know if there's a correlation there, but um, yeah, it, but it's it's a really interesting point that you're making. So I'll, I'll connect this to someone someone else's research on on reviews. Um, so basically, not everyone who comes to see one of your shows or invites you as an entertainer is going to rate you. Okay, right. who's going to rate you? Who's going to be more likely? There's two types of people: <laughs> the people who really love you, yeah, right, and the people who really hate you, right. <laughs> so this is called the brag and moan bias. Mm. Um, so people who say like, I bought this product or I invited this guy and they want to brag to their friends about it or to everyone else, they're going to be more likely to rate it and give you a five star. Okay. And people who really hate you or hate the product and are really disappointed, they're also going to, going to be more likely to give a rating. So what you get is this J shaped distribution mm. where you, it's a bimodal distribution where you get a disproportionate number of ones, a disproportionate number of fives, and then relatively few two trees and fours the ones that you just said that you find more informative right so this is a it's a big problem so there's a lot of selection issues with um with ratings and because of these selection issues you you don't get the ratings that you actually and other consumers will find more informative the more moderate ratings the more nuanced perspective on your performance as an entertainer or your performance as a company or as a restaurant or whatever Right. Yeah. And, and, and just, just quickly before we move forward, I would just like to inform the listener that don't, don't feel guilty about giving this a five star review at all. (laughs) Don't be like, Oh, maybe I didn't put enough thought into it. You can still go ahead. I I won't, uh, I won't criticize you for giving me a five star review. Right. um, And and hopefully a lot of uh, Dutch speaking people will will hear this interview and they're going to give five stars. Love it. Love it. Love it. (laughs) Um, So let's talk uh, more about your, um, I work with the Amazon reviews because that is it is really interesting that that uh, it, this is um, kind of seemingly an exciting time for consumer power. You know, I don't have to uh, if I wanted to say select a beer before I had to see which commercial had the most attractive women in it, and then it turns out that that beer doesn't taste very good. And when I put uh, will provide Coors Light in my dating profile that doesn't yield a lot of matches or whatever. I'm in Colorado right now, so I'm teetering <laughs> on blasphemy. But um, uh, 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 but so uh, you know, n- now that we're we're able to go and rate restaurants or, or rate products ourselves, and and now you can go on Amazon and you can see what people like you that were also interested in this product and uh, said about it. So. Uh, but you you have some research that shows that there's uh, some flaws, which we've already kind of um, covered. Uh, right. So we, we've we've talked about two flaws. One is like consumers from with different native languages, right, 
right. use the same rating scale. And so this is going to lead to some some noise, right? Some people are going to provide more extreme ratings, other less extreme, etc. Um, we've talked about selection issues, right? Then there is the issue of fake reviews, right? There is like 10% of reviews or so is just is, is fake reviews. Um, they're, they're either purchased by the company or they're posted by the company themselves or by com- competitors of the company or, right? Yeah, I actually um, have, um, and, and your, this episode's going to come out before this other one, but I did one recently that uh, a, a guy is, um, he, he's kind of a computer hacker who wrote a book and, and it was a lot of, it, it, was, it was based on um, kind of small like companies like locksmiths and plumbers and and that sort of thing but actually like kind of illegitimate businesses that worked as third parties that were able to manipulate their reviews and they would have uh, there's even places where they would hire um like hollywood writers to write because they had so many of these like kind of fake companies all over the place they would hire all these writers to write all of these these reviews and and um and uh, some things like Yelp and whatnot don't don't have the standards in place just yet to uh, to police that really right. So these are really the the fraudulent cases, right? Like right. Fake reviews. But then then there's also the more subtle influences. Consumers really have a hard time evaluating product quality, right? So I mean, there's there's studies showing you you give people a wine, you tell them it's forty. 40 bucks a bottle or 10 bucks or, and that has a major influence on their appreciation for the wine. Hmm. Right. Um, so marketing variables, um, like price and like how many beautiful women there are in an ad or celebrities, et cetera, they have an influence on how you're going to evaluate the product. Right. Right. Um, so we have a hard time as consumers evaluating product quality. We don't know what is good, what is bad. Oftentimes we're also not in the right conditions to evaluate product quality so for instance um, i buy a car seat and um, i spend 350 bucks on a car seat how am i going to evaluate the quality of this car seat right the major purpose of a car car seat is to keep my my children safe well i have two kids i haven't been in a car accident right so how do i know whether this car seat is safe yes or no most people are in that situation but most people don't then realize, oh, I've never been in a situation where I can evaluate the quality of this car seat, so I should not post a review. People are like, I'm going to post a review anyway. This is the best car seat ever, right? I paid 350 bucks for it. Oh, that's interesting. Right? So, and, and no, and no and, one's like taking their babies around and setting them in and asking them, like, what's the most comfortable for, <laughs> for them? And, exactly. Yeah. We all buy one car seat, right? right? We don't buy 10 car seats. We don't evaluate them side by side. Mm. So we don't create the appropriate conditions for evaluating product quality. And But the point is, consumers don't realize that they have not been in the appropriate conditions to evaluate product quality. You haven't been in a crash. You don't exactly. Know and, and, and still, they do post ratings. Hmm. So this is, there is no negative intention or so from the consumer. It's just like this, this is how consumers behave. But at this, what happens is there, this all adds noise to these ratings that are posted. They're basically uninformative ratings that are, that are now online and are influencing other consumers. When there's actually people doing studies with crash test dummies and and actually doing uh, evaluations on on what the actual impact is and how well these things work. Exactly. And so this is the case for for many product categories. So in economics, we make this distinction between um, 
um, horizontally differentiated product categories and vertically differentiated product ca- categories. So vertically differentiated product categories are, for instance, for instance, a car seat or so. You can objectively evaluate um, the safety of a car seat mm-hmm. by doing exactly the test that you just suggested. For restaurants, it's it's harder. It's more like a, a taste issue. You may find restaurant A better. I may find restaurant B um, right. restaurant B better. Clothes. Everyone has a different sense of fashion. Like how, how well the clothes hold up is probably pretty low on people's you know checklist of of what they're evaluating. Right. Exactly. And so what we did in our paper is we looked, we focused mostly on vertically differentiated product categories, so where there are objective dimensions, and you can objectively score and rank products um, if you do the right tests. And then so we looked at um, whether the average user rating that you can find on Amazon corresponds to the evaluations of the experts that have done the lab tests, right, that have done mm-hmm. the crash tests of the, of the car seats, etc. And so we find that the the correlation is very low. There's mm-hmm. very little correspondence. So basically, if you want to know the objective quality of um, a blood pressure monitor or so, mm-hmm. or the safety of a car seat, the last place to go is Amazon. Right. right? It's not a very informative source of information. Um, so don't consult other people's opinions. If you really care about the objective quality, what you should do is... Consult the expert opinions. Go to Consumer Reports or something like that. Go to Consumer Reports or other experts, yeah. Yeah, I I remember when I was in in Paris and uh, I went to a sommelier and um, and this is before I really even drank wine and um, didn't know much about it, but but the sommelier was basically like, spend $15 on a bottle and you're probably going to be good. And if you spend more than that, you're throwing your money away up until... It's like $80 or $60 a bottle. Then there's a noticeable difference in quality, but you're not going to know <laughs> that difference anyway. Oh, so, that's so don't waste your money. Yeah. Um, uh, so, um, it, yeah, that's so. <laughs> it, uh, so go to Consumer Reporter if you want to make better decisions on that. What, what kind of things were you testing? Like what, what products? Well, so we've looked at um, at car seats, at printers, at mm-hmm. air conditioning units, at air purifiers, um, at um, headphones, like all the, these kind of things where you can um, assess objective quality. So we looked at like over 100 product categories. Um, yeah, that makes sense that uh, to not trust consumer reviews of an air purifier. It's like, oh, the air seems pure right now. Like, how do you know what's what's telling you that exactly? Or who are you going to trust for uh, blood pressure monitors? <laughs> right, right. A consumer who's like, oh yeah, this is really good. I have very good blood pressure, five star. Right, or the experts that have actually compared the product side by side. Um, so. There's very little correspondence, and there is little correspondence for all the reasons that we talked about, right? Selection issues, consumers don't know how to evaluate quality, they're not in the right conditions, etc. Now, we do find that the average rating can be somewhat informative for the objective quality of products if it is based on a large sample, 
Okay. Right. Um, if there are hundreds of consumers providing a rating, then the average becomes somewhat meaningful and it starts to converge more with the expert test of consumer reports. Yeah. There is more signal in the noise when there are large samples. Yeah. The problem is consumers don't um, consumers who look at these ratings don't take into account the sample size. They're like, I oh. always, when I'm on Yelp, I always, because I travel around, I always go to Yelp or, you know, it used to be Urban Spoon. I'd use it, which I don't think exists anymore. But um, but you would, I would see, I'd immediately see, oh, this, this restaurant has a five star. But now I know to look and be like, oh, that has two reviews. Yeah. Whereas this one has four and a half stars with 400 reviews. I'm going to go to that one instead. Right, exactly. So, so you have... You have a level of sophistication already that many many consumers. Well, have. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and this is a, this is a very this is another. Um, I mean, relating this back to to Kahneman and Tversky, so they have this. They they introduced this idea that we're oftentimes insensitive to sample size, and this is just an, another manifestation of that. Hmm. Um, we 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 tend to neglect sample size, so. Um, if you think about the the complexity of the environment, right, that we talked about, so one complexity is nonlinearity. We tend to linearize nonlinearity. We talked about that before. Another complexity is that the information that we're getting is not always as precise uh, as it needs to be, mm-hmm. right? And so small samples, averages that are based on small samples, are not precise enough to 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 be uh, such that the the average becomes a good cue for inferring for, for uh, inferring quality. This is the best car seat I've ever owned. How many have you had? Well, just the one. But <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> um, oh, that's interesting. So, um, so what about um, what about price points? Do you uh, do you think that uh, a consumer um, gets what they pay for and, and in what domains they, they are getting what they pay for. I mean, we've been talking a lot of, about how, um, yeah, you know, Comcast or whatever can rip you off overcharging for something that's making not, not really any difference in your life. Um, but, but say you go on, um, I, which I, I always had a subscription to consumer reporter, um, I bought my car off of this is what Consumer Reporter told me to buy, so I'm just going to buy that car. That was it. I didn't I didn't factor in anything else, but I did notice that um, in Consumer Reporter it did seem that as far as a car went, anyway, that the higher ratings that they had did or or the more the the car costs often did lead to better ratings. But then there's also like they would have this is a best buy one or whatever that that's like this is a reasonably priced one that's higher quality than other ones at this price point um have you done any work with how people um evaluate that because some some people think that you get what you pay for and other people yeah so it turns out there is quite a bit of of research on the relationship between price and quality and quality is oftentimes um, defined as, as consumer report scores um, and it turns out there is a correlation so the correlation a correlation coefficient ranges from minus one to plus one and so if, if it's above zero then it means there is a positive association between price and quality the more you pay the more you get right mm. and so the correlation is typically about 0.30 um, 
Now, we've looked actually at this correlation in, we've used this correlation as a benchmark for evaluating the usefulness of the average user rating. So it turns out that the, the correlation between the average user rating and consumer report scores is lower than the correlation between price and consumer report scores. Okay, so if you Can want, you say that again? so the correlation between the average user rating on Amazon mm-hmm. and consumer report scores is lower mm-hmm. than the correlation between price and consumer report scores. So what that means is that price is more informative for inferring product quality mm-hmm. than the average user rating is. Uh-huh. So if you want to know what the what the better product is, the one with that with that is higher priced or the one with the higher average user rating, well, you're better off thinking, picking the one that is higher priced. Right. Um, so, so the correlation between price and quality varies a lot between, uh, between product categories. So for some product categories, there's a stronger correlation for other product categories. There's a weaker correlation. One of my, one of my colleagues has done Donnie Lichtenstein. He has done um, work on it, and I think the finding is that for for durables, the correlation is higher than for non-durables. Um, and and there are some some other findings. It depends on um, how pricey the product category is, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm I don't have the the uh, the insights top of mind from uh, um, from that research. It yeah, it is a must. It seems like a something's must be a little bit difficult in that regard uh, you know like you mentioned the um the horizontal factors or what's what's the phrasing horizontal uh, horizontally vertical uh, sorry horizontally differentiated product categories yeah uh because what consumer reporter doesn't tell you is if your friends are going to think it's cool you know <laughs> or, or, that's right or um it, if it's going to look good in if this particular thing is going to look good in your kitchen or not you know um so there is i I mean that just i mean it just goes to show you just how many choices people have to make so it's very easy to understand especially with something like talking about you know gallons per mile or or uh megabits or whatever it might be or processing speed or whatever i mean had i not read about that i would have never to expect the average consumer to just know that <laughs> that not to trust their intuitive in- instincts on something like that, um, right, I, yeah. I think it's kind of asking a lot. Do you do you do you see um, do you see there being more um, kind of regulatory or like consumer advocate groups pushing for uh, say a little more truth in advertising? In, in these kind of metrics? Um, is that al- already happening, or do you think that that's going to happen in the future? Yeah, so, I mean, th- there, are, um, there are metrics, standardized metrics um, for product categories. So, for instance, pages per minute is like a standardized metric. All manufacturers or all major manufacturers use this as a metric for print speed, right? Mm-hmm. It's standardized. Um, the issue is that uh, the metric does is not always perfectly aligned with the the benefit that the consumer is looking for right. time savings, right? So when designing metrics or recommending industries to use certain metrics, it's always important to keep the consumer in mind. Um, a standardized metric that allows comparing products um, does not always lead consumers to know which level of the metric to choose, right? So 
if I'm like, oh, this is 10 pages per minute and this is 20 pages per minute and this is 30 pages per minute, um, you're right that the third printer is the fastest one, right? But you don't, it doesn't give you a lot of information about the, the true benefit or how much you su- should spend for this additional increase, right? Um, so it's important to think about the, the information that you want to communicate to um, consumers. Yeah, I, I think if I were buying a new computer or something like that, I would now now knowing what I know, I would want to know something like how long is a two hour movie going to take to download mm-hmm. or something like that and evaluate from there rather than just these numbers that right and and it's pretty simple right the, the solution is the same as miles per gallon don't right. don't only provide miles per gallon but also gallons per mile mm-hmm. for internet connections it's the same thing like don't only provide megabits per second but also provide seconds per megabit mm-hmm. right it's, it's a very easy thing to do <laughs> it's like you add a number um, and uh, and people will realize that there is this uh, this nonlinear mm-hmm. effect of the attribute on uh, on the benefit. Um, all right. Well, I have one more thing I want to talk about with you, but before we get to that, um, I have all of my guests plug a charity of their choice each week. Um, so, what charity would you like to plug? So, I would um, like to encourage everyone to donate to Wikipedia. Um, I think this is a source of information that we, that most of us use almost on a daily basis. Almost everyone has used it, and it might be the most undervalued um, resource in the sense that we m- most people don't pay for it. Um, and um, so, yeah, that's my um, that's my charity. Yeah, I love Wikipedia. I've gone down many a rabbit hole <laughs> on, <laughs> on Wikipedia. Um, so you can go to the herewearepodcast.com website, and I'll have a link to donate there. But you're already on Wikipedia. You can just go and donate. Um, so so uh, the, the last thing that I was uh, curious about is... Um, is if you could uh, explain your your work about how um, uh, evaluating how to help people make better decisions, the difference between um, evaluating the process as opposed to the outcome. Um, I thought I thought that was interesting. I didn't I didn't fully understand it, um, but but it seemed very interesting. It it's it seemed like so so. I mean, you're you're going to have to correct me here, I'm sure. But, but say say I take a math test, and the difference between, um, you know, having to show my work and and maybe missing a number or something like that, and and some slight error that leads me to have the wrong answer, um, might might still show that I have a better knowledge of what's happening than happening to select the correct answer on a multiple choice test or something like that, right? Yeah. I, I don't know if that's a good metaphor, but... Um, yeah, so, so you're referring to um, a paper I wrote on, on accountability, mm-hmm. right? So there's this distinction in the, in the um, organizational um, behavior literature between outcome accountability and process accountability. You can either hold someone accountable for the outcome of her decisions or for the process by which she arrived at her decisions or judgments. Um, And so what the literature shows um, so far, um, or before I wrote my paper, was that um, 
that um, in general, process accountability leads to better judgment and decisions than outcome accountability. Um, so it makes sense to encourage people to think about the process by which they generate decisions or, or the process that, that generates an outcome or whatever. Um, and um, so what I found is that this is true, but only for fairly simple tasks where people can figure out the right process. Um, for more complex tasks, um, there's actually no difference between outcome accountability and, uh, and process accountability. So what I tried to do when writing that, the motivation for that paper was there's all this academic literature that says, hey, you should hold people accountable for the, for the decision process and not only reward them if the outcome of their decisions was fine, right? Mm -hmm. So hold people process accountable. But then when you look at the real world, Outcome accountability is most prevalent, right? People who meet their sales targets, people who make the the right investment decisions, etc., um, they get a bonus, right? right? So they're held accountable for the. And so the the insight is that well, the real world is oftentimes very complex, right? And so the 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 um, studies that we've done in the lab so far that social psychologists have done might have been too simple, and. When the task is simple, you do find an advantage of process accountability. But when the task is harder, there is actually um, no difference between the two. Hmm. Originally, I, I thought that maybe you would find the reversal where it's better to hold people accountable for the outcomes of their decisions when the task is complex and vice versa for simple tasks. But I never found this. Uh, Intuitively, it does just seem like some of the outcomes say, you know, it's like a... a CEO or whatever it, it doesn't get rewarded like well you lost 20 million dollars but you did it in such a clever <laughs> intelligent way it's just oh you just missed it by this much and right you know they'd much rather someone be lucky and <laughs> and just throw a dart at a uh, at, at, at a you know a stock board or whatever and, and and pick something that wins. Right. Yeah, but I mean what what ends up happening is that people get rewarded for randomness. Right. Right. Due to randomness, the outcome is positive and you're rewarded. Right. Due to randomness, your firm is not doing so well and, um, I mean, you're, you're punished, right? Right. So right. it's, uh, yeah. So w when you talk about simple di different versus difficult tasks, like what are examples of? So the task that we used was the simple task was, so there is, an outcome that um, the participants needed to predict like it was the, the popularity of of mobile phones okay and they needed to predict this popularity in a test market right based on several cues like did the phone have 10 buttons or 20 buttons what was the size of the phone and all, all that stuff okay and so in a simple task these cues were related to the outcome in a linear way there was a linear effect of the cues on the outcomes. Hmm. Um, in the more complex tasks, the relationship was nonlinear, and there were interactions between the cues, such that the effect of of, of the size uh, of the phone on um, on the popularity depended on the number of buttons on the phone, right? So there's hmm. interactive effects of the cues on the outcomes. So that's a more complex uh, task. And so our idea is, well, the complex task is probably more representative of the real world, right? Where problems are not linear in their interactions, et cetera. Um, and so what we find is that in the simple task, the simple linear task, 
process accountability helps people to predict popularity of mobile phones. In the complex task, there is no um, advantage hmm. um, and it leads to the same um, judgment quality. Um, awesome. Well, that uh, it was fantastic. I think we covered a lot in we an did, hour's yeah. time. We, we covered a whole lot. Uh, I, and people are, like I said, people always like hearing um, about um, economic uh, decision-making and that sort of stuff. So I, I very much appreciate your time, Bart, and, uh, and thank you, everybody, for listening. And I will talk with you next week. Thank you guys for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did uh, and you're looking to get me a um, belated uh, Christmas or uh, Kwanzaa or Hanukkah present, I'll, I'll take. I'm I'm not, uh, you know, you may have picked up on I'm not. I'm not a terribly religious person, but I will take gifts from any religion happily. Uh, if you'd like to get me something still, it's not too late. You can go on to iTunes and write a review. They mean a whole lot to me, guys. It warms my heart. I check it uh, <laughs> an embarrassing amount. I, multiple times a week, I go on to iTunes, and if there's a new review, I, um, I go, yes, uh, to myself, and then I read more, and I put more work into this podcast with um, that validation fuel. So make sure and do that. And also, um, oh man, guys, I, I forgot. So this is the, the last episode of the year. I'm so excited about next week's episode. You guys are going to love it, I, I imagine. Um, anyway, I, I think this is going to be a big one. I think we're going to get a lot of new listeners uh, from next week's episode um, I'm going to be talking with Adam Bradley, who is an English professor who studies hip hop. He also studies pop music now a little bit, but he is a he is a hip hop um, expert and kind of analyzes hip hop as poetry. And he is an amazing author. He has um, many many books. He he wrote um, or ghost wrote or whatever uh commons autobiography he um he wrote this amazing um well rather i guess edited or put together this amazing uh, book the anthology of rap which um if if for no other reason it's a great book um just in general gives it a lot of insights into the entire history of rap music but if if you're not even interested in that um, for no other reason, you should even page through the book and just write down his his list of uh, of the the um, I don't know however many three hundred um, songs or whatever it makes for a wonderful um, Spotify playlist. He also wrote uh, the Book of Rhymes, the Poetics of Hip Hop, and he he's he's written other books non hip hop related as well, but. Um, uh, the poetry of pop is, is going to be his new one coming out, uh, late in late, uh, 2016. And so please, uh, make sure and, and have a look at some of his work, uh, ahead of time. And this is 
This is uh, going to be a really great one. It, w- it was one of the, the loosest, best conversations that I've ever had on the podcast. We basically just, um, you know, talked about rap. I talked about the rap that I liked, and he gave me his thoughts on the rap that I like. It was awesome. It was really cool. Uh, I think we're going to do another one um, later on in the year. So, yeah, I uh, hope you enjoy it. You guys are awesome. Thanks again for listening, and have a lovely New Year's. Hello. I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Yunt. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. And he's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. <laughs> suicide Buddies. <laughs> That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, one of the reasons it's possible that he killed himself <laughs> is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, yeah. he's in a castle in Poland. He's Like, I mean, if yeah. you lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. <laughs> 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 That's like literally what happened to Batman. <laughs> he literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a <laughs> bat. I'm a, I'm I'm a bat. bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a rich... I don't know what you want from me. And uh, my, and my a... girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a I bat. Help people. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My. Uh, my... <laughs> 